80% of our prospects who lease with us did not come and take a tour with us before they signed a lease. And so how do we take the service level expectations that we have on site for our customers and shift around our resources to say, look, it may not mean that we need as many leasing consultants. We need customer service people. Student housing professionals often use the term heads and beds. So what does that mean? So we typically use it when someone is referring to occupancy. People will say, at the end of the day, it's all about the heads and beds. By the way, it's not all about heads and beds, but I understand the sentiment. We can't operate without heads and beds. But how about if you had all of those heads show up on move-in day and you didn't have a bed, even for just one person? Everything you and your team work so hard for a return will be for nothing if just one person shows up on move-in day and they find out they don't have a mattress. The most essential thing for a student to have on move-in day is a mattress. doesn't matter if all the other furniture in the unit is in great shape. If the mattress isn't there, that student is going to go directly to Google and they'll post something about how crummy the apartment is all because they had to sleep on the floor or you had to put them in a hotel room. Look, things happen. Supply chain issues happen. Inspection teams miss things. Let's talk about inspections for just a second. I mean, think about it. The one piece of furniture that you can't really assess during those inspections is the mattress. No one's pulling the sheets all the way off and flipping the mattress over. It just isn't happening. So what is your plan when July 31st happens? Or for some of you, I know it's July 15th or maybe it's a little bit later, but you get to move out day and you start those inspections and you find out you've got 5, 10, 20 additional mattresses that you did not order and did not account for. Yeah, most of the furniture companies that are, that are servicing the student housing industry, they're going to stock extra mattresses. But do they have the logistics to get you the mattresses by moving day? Yeah, you can also try and source some mattresses from your local mattress store, but number one, you're paying retail, and number two, they typically don't have the right size mattress. And if you're a student housing veteran, you know what I'm talking about. That's why you need to remember this simple website, studenthousingmattress.com. That's the website for student housing owners and managers to order mattresses from Jameson Bedding. Yes, we've talked about Jameson on the podcast before. Mattresses from Jameson are manufactured in the U.S., and they can get mattresses to just about anywhere in the lower 48 within just a few days, in most situations. And they're quality mattresses. They even have those famous blue vinyl mattresses that we all widely use within the industry. So again, that's studenthousingmattress.com. We'll provide a link in the show notes, studenthousingmattress.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees. I'm also the CEO of Student Housing Insight. If this is your first time catching our podcast, we're not just a podcast. Student Housing Insight is a platform for off-campus housing professionals to network, to share ideas and data, and to overall just build community for those of us who are just passionate about this sector. So if you'd like to stay in the loop and see what we offer, what we're all about, make sure you go to studenthousinginsight.com 
and you can see what we're up to there. We also host the industry's monthly webinar called Shop Talk. And if you haven't been a part of this, I strongly suggest that you register for it. But you can go get more information at shoptalk.info. And you can register by clicking on the register for web meeting button that's on the homepage. And we will send you notifications of when those are planned. All right, so let's get into today's episode. We've got another installment of our Profiles in Student Housing series. If you haven't listened to that series yet, it's where I sit down with an industry veteran and kind of do a deep dive into how they ended up building their career in student housing, what challenges they see ahead for the industry, and also just to get some advice that they have for others who may be considering a career in student housing. So our guest today for this episode is Casey Peterson. He's the Chief Operating Officer for Peak Made Real Estate. Peak Made is one of the top 10, I think the top seven, meaning that they're number seven, largest student housing managers in the U.S. And I think they've got right around 40,000 beds, if I'm not mistaken. So for those of you that have listened to the podcast for a while, you'll know that this isn't the first time that Casey's been on the podcast. The first time was, I think, actually back in 2018 when we did our first site level to C-suite episode where I interviewed Casey along with several other executives who got their start at the site level, many of them while they were in college, and worked their way all the way up to an executive level or even into the C-suite, such as Casey. Casey also sits on our leadership committee for Shop Talk, which has allowed me to have a lot of interactions with him over the past year. And I'm constantly impressed with how he's thinking about not just moving peak made forward, but to move the entire industry forward. So I really was interested in, in sitting down with him and finding out what has impacted his career journey to this point that makes him that way. So with that being said, let's go to that interview. Casey, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Wes. Thanks for having me. Well, it has been a while. I think the last one that you were on, other than maybe maybe some stuff with Shop Talk that I may have replayed or something, but I think the last one was the first site level to C-suite yeah. episode that we did. Did it live at Interface. Gosh, I guess that was like six years ago now. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to date myself, but I do remember that well. And I've never done an on-site podcast recording before, but it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And I've got to say the technology and the studio equipment and everything is way better <laughs> than what I had. <laughs> we literally just kind of threw out a microphone on the middle of the table and started recording, but it was a lot of fun. So yeah, thanks for doing that. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Yeah, you know, This profile series is something that the audience is really enjoying to hear about the executives within student housing and kind of what their journey has been and looking forward to sharing that with them in regards to yourself. So let's just start with with that question. What's your origin story and how has that kind of intersected with student housing? Yeah, so grew up just outside Madison, Wisconsin, which is a, an awesome college town for anybody who hasn't been there. It's a great college town. I certainly didn't appreciate how awesome it was until I moved away and got into this industry. Right. <laughs> I was growing up in one of the best you know, college atmospheres uh, in the country, but nonetheless grew up there and then decided as I was getting ready to go off to school that I wanted to get away a little bit. 
My dad actually worked for the UW-Madison system. And so okay. the idea of running into my father on campus was not that appealing <laughs> to me. So I decided they have a reciprocity, tuition reciprocity with the University of Minnesota. So I jumped okay. the border and went over to the University of Minnesota and got my degree there. I actually met my wife in high school. So uh, we're high school sweethearts and she came uh, to the University of Minnesota and we had a great time. I did not live in anything that resembles purpose-built student housing today. (laughs) I lived in some of the most horrible duplex and house conditions that all of us look at now and call the shadow market. It was called something else when I was living there, but it was certainly not what our our students grow up in today. Now, did you get started in student housing while you were at the University of Minnesota, or was it something that came later? Actually, right afterwards. So I graduated with a degree in poli-sci and sociology, and I had full intention of going to law school. But I graduated in December, and you know you don't start law school till the fall, so I needed, this was pre-Obamacare, so you, yeah. you had to find a place to get healthcare in between that gap. And so I had a friend who worked for a technical school who had a master lease with a school or with a uh, property that was off campus at the uh, okay. University of Minnesota. And he said that there was a, a full-time leasing consultant position open and that I should apply for it. And I did, and I got the job. So what was that experience like? It was great. You know, it was with Lincoln Property Company at the time, who okay. really didn't do anything related to student housing. So they were they were effectively, you know, operating this student deal that leased by the bed, but they didn't understand the by the bed concept. They, you know, they did basically everything conventionally, but, you know, with a student twist. It was really fun. It was interesting to kind of get onboarded with a conventional operator, but work at a student housing property. Right. But I was only there for about four months. And then GMH was on their acquisition tear back then. And they ended up buying the property, you know, again, within about four months of me being there. Was that before or after their IPO? Uh, It was after their IPO. So they were on a tear. That That would have been 2005, I think. They were public at the time. They were going out and trying to buy a whole lot of stuff. Quick, funny story. Jim Kirby, who actually still works at GMH today, one of their head acquisition guys, he actually was touring the property because he wanted to buy it. And we joke about this now, uh, still today, but he toured the property and said that he was looking for his daughter, Caroline, for an apartment. And I was the leasing (laughs) consultant who showed him around it. And I was certain that I was going to close this deal. I had no no clue that he was uh, actually looking to buy the property. So I must have followed up with him and called him on his cell phone for five weeks when he finally called me back and said, dude, we're buying your property. Stop calling me. <laughs> Caroline doesn't exist. She's not going to lease an apartment. But it was, a, it was a real fun story. I have a story of doing one of those tours with Jim as well. He didn't put up the facade of you know looking for his daughter, but we had um, two properties that we sold to him and led right up to their IPO. And then... Um, one day I was just, I happened to be at a property that we had, I think we were just delivering the second phase at Coastal Carolina. And I just happened to be down there that day and he came walking through the door. <laughs> I was just like, so when's this transaction going to happen? <laughs> so, um, I, I was so young at the time. I didn't know how to recognize those types of things. <laughs> I just figured he was a good old fashioned uncle trying to find a, find an apartment for his niece. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so funny. Well, so, all right. So Lincoln properties, then on to GMH. Yeah. Uh, how did that turn into peak? I onboarded with GMH 
actually as a leasing manager, they kind of reorged the, the onsite team. So I became the leasing manager. And then, you know, like so many stories you hear in this, in our business, it's kind of a freak thing where the property manager who was on the property was there for a very short time and became very clear that she wasn't going to make it. And so GMH let her go within, I think about six months. And I just kind of was the guy standing there saying, well, you know, I'll, I'll help out while you guys try and find a replacement. And yep. I did that for 30 days and they ended up saying, well, you just want the job? And I said, I'm woefully unqualified for it, but I'll give it a shot. So I did. And they gave me that opportunity. A similar situation. I was in an assistant manager's role and that was kind of like right after college. And I had already gone through a lease up with two managers who had never done student housing. They were good, but you could tell they were out of their element. And the next person they brought in was not from student housing at all, once again, <laughs> and was just not cut out for it on so many different levels. And when um, that person left, it was kind of the same thing. They were they were looking at me saying, Wes, you've been here the longest. We've got a lot of trust in you. What kind of role do you want to play? And I'm like, I do not want to be the manager, but if you can't find someone that's got student housing background, I'm all in. (laughs) And fortunately they found somebody that was and um, got to learn some good things from her and um, ended up going into commercial real estate for a couple of years before I came back to student housing. But yeah, very similar path. I feel like. Yeah. It's like so many people, you know, you you hear that you just kind of get thrown into the fire and you end up figuring it out, which is you know what, what I did and I'm sure what, what lots of people do. Well, and you know, to be fair to the regional manager that promoted me, and I'm sure the same is probably a regional that promoted you into that position as well. At that point in time, student housing was still such of a new thing, especially purpose-built mm-hmm. student housing and especially like garden style kind of stuff, at least that we saw here in the Southeast. It was one of those things where having a, for lack of a better word, a kid right out of college has been there for a couple of cycles. It's kind of one of those situations where you trust them more than you do bringing in someone else who's never gone through it. And yeah. um, I think a lot of us probably went up the ranks pretty quick, a lot quicker than what we should have. But <laughs> folks like yourself, I think, you know, ultimately um, it panned out pretty well. So, yeah. But yeah. So what happened after that? I have no complaints. I don't think my regional at the time, you know, bargained for how many phone calls she was going to be getting from me uh, you know, for, for six months, but you know, she, she got through it. Yeah. So uh, I was a property manager for call it three or four years. We kind of went through three or four cycles and had a, a really, really good team, had a great, you know, great property that we were managing at, at the UMM on the, on the West Bank. And I kind of got the itch to do something new. And I was introduced to one of the regional vice presidents at a company called Place Properties, which is still around today, I believe. And she was looking for a traveling property manager, somebody who could go around and and kind of put out fires. And yeah, I've got to ask, who was that? uh, Teresa Harding, if you remember Teresa. Okay. Yeah. Don't remember her name, but um, know a lot of folks that were involved with Place very early on, main one being Rhonda. Oh yeah. So Rhonda was gone by the time I, uh, by the yeah, time she was I probably at GMH by that point. So, yep. She was yeah. exactly. So Teresa and you know, a few others were kind of getting the place properties kind of management platform set up place had just raised a bunch of money and was doing you know a number of development deals and acquisition deals. So they were kind of getting the infrastructure set up. And so I was 
one of the first traveling property managers. Uh, we called ourselves the SWAT team. And I did that for a little over a year. And I would say it was, that is, you know, you talk about like, you know, real years and dog years, like traveling onsite in a uh, <laughs> traveling role. One year is like eight years of experience yeah. because you're, you're seeing so many different markets. You're seeing so many different problems. You know, you're not getting shipped into the deals that are performing great and have no problems whatsoever. You're, you're getting shipped into the properties where there's a staffing vacancy or there's some other issue that we've got to kind of sort out. And so it was just a, an awesome experience, but, you know, a, a taxing one. You know, you're on the road yeah. basically 48 weeks out of the year. And um, yeah. luckily I was, I had just gotten married. We didn't have any kids. And so it was a great time to be able to kind of yeah. have that experience and know that it wasn't going to last forever, but know that I was going to yeah. get, you know, a ton of experience by doing it. So I did it for just over a year. And then Teresa actually gave me an opportunity to become a regional manager. And that's really kind of what I wanted to do. That was kind of my, my pie in the yeah. sky job at that point in my career. So she gave me this great opportunity to be a regional. Actually, my wife and I moved to Dallas to do it because that's where we had an office. Okay. And I got to oversee a kind of a combination of operating deals and we were a big developer at the time. So you'd, you'd have a, you know, a couple of new developments in there as well. But I still believe today that, you know, the regional manager job is probably one of the most difficult in student housing. It's just it is. a really, really hard job, but such an awesome one. You get to lead teams, build teams, see success, see challenges. That's a great, great role. Yeah. And being in Dallas, kind of center of the country probably helped quite a bit <laughs> because yeah. I remember at that particular time, I mean, place properties, at least from a development standpoint, you guys were building just about everywhere. We were. Some markets were great. Some markets you still kind of scratch your head as what we were thinking there. <laughs> but we were very, very active at the time. And then fast forward a little bit, then 2008, 2009 hit, then there was no development going on. There was no yeah. deals happening. And that's kind of when place properties, they still wanted to be very active as a developer. Student housing wasn't really active and on the development front at that time. And the executive team at place had kind of moved into other other avenues, other priorities on the real estate front. And so that's when we formed Peak. We kind of Peak was we took a, a big rubber band, wrapped it around the student housing operations and development platform within yeah. place, and we formed Peak out of there. And so I yeah. came over with that transition again as a, a regional and Bob Clark, who is still my boss today, he took the helm at that point and we launched, you know, what we know today as Peak Made Real Estate. So to go back to place for a second, because I know they were doing a lot of military and still do military, but I know they were mm -hmm. doing a lot of military at that time as well. Did you get to work on any of those mm -hmm. projects? I did. That was a fascinating experience. If we could all rewind the clock, we would say, you know, that we probably should have built out the model a little bit better before starting to build them all over the country. And I think that you know, what we didn't appreciate at the time was just the cyclical nature of the military, you know, off-base military housing business. You know, you'd yeah. sign 50 people to move in and then there'd be 50 people who, you know, got relocation orders and, you know, had to let them out of their yeah. lease. And so it was a constant kind of constant journey of trying to keep beds full, you know, when there's yeah. people getting out the back door. Do you think from an operations standpoint that that's a pretty transferable between student housing going to military or... Did you find yourself bored? I think we hoped it would be more transferable. And there was certainly, obviously, uh, similarities that we were able to, to kind of transfer over. But more or less, you know, the idea of just taking the student housing model and applying it to military, I think, ultimately didn't prove out the way that we originally thought it would. And that's really where Place decided to push their chips in on the military housing business. 
and we, yeah. you know, we still had this, we still had this portfolio of student housing deals that we needed to operate and, and you aren't going to do any more yeah. deals. And so you're, you're really your only choice, you know, recessionary times in 08, 09 during the GFC it was, it wasn't a good time to be in the deal business. And so your only option then is to focus on how do you operate better? How do you extract as much value out of the, the deals that you have as you possibly can? And that's when property management, that's where we, uh, you know, have to earn our pay. Yeah. Yeah. So peak gets formed. Peak gets formed. And I was a regional for, I want to say four-ish years, four or five years. And this is another kind of funny side story, but I, I decided that Bob, my boss, Bob Clark, um, he did not come from an operations background. He came from a mm-hmm. finance and accounting background. And so I decided that if he was going to run the show, maybe I should approach him and tell him that I want to, I'm going to invent a new role that is basically going to be kind of his operations lens that he yeah. you know, looks at the business with. So I drew up this big job description and I you know, put time on his calendar and marched into his office and presented this uh, new job that it was going to be kind of his right-hand man. To his credit, he heard me out. He did not throw me out of his office, listened <laughs> intently to the whole presentation. I'm relatively certain as soon as I walked out the door that he placed it into the recycling bin. But you know, I think, I think it was my opportunity to make an impression on him about what I wanted sure. to do in my career. You know, it wasn't four or five months later, he called me and he said, hey, that job that you want to do, we're not going to do that, but we are looking to launch a third-party management business. And would you be interested in kind of spearheading the business development team on that front? And so I gotcha. said, yeah, because I was, I was kind of ready to, ready to try something new. And so that's when I kind of grew into this business development role, which was awesome. And I did it for, again, three or four years. Just when we grew, our, our portfolio at that point was 15 or 20% third-party management and 80% kind of owned developments through our partners at at Blue Vista. And then we grew that out. And now today, when you look at our portfolio makeup, it's kind of the opposite. We're 80% third-party management and 20% kind of own deals. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how did that role eventually turn into COO? So when we started that initiative of trying to grow the third-party business, we only had probably 30 properties in the whole portfolio. And you fast forward a few years down the line and, you know, we had 80 or 85 properties in the portfolio and we didn't have a COO. There was no COO. And so Bob approached me and just said, look, I've been running this management company kind of on my own for a long time, but we need to have another layer in the org chart to be able to better manage the portfolio that we have and continue to grow it. And so he said, we need a COO. And I said, well, that that sounds great. When can I start? And, um, you know, we hashed it all out and and that was my opportunity. And that was about six years ago in in 2016, where we kind of built that out and been doing that ever since. So to go back to that business development role a little bit, I think it's probably good for some of the folks in our audience who they really enjoy leasing. They really enjoy that process. I see a lot of those folks become very curious about Okay, I've been able to sell this property. Can I sell this this company to somebody? Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what you think someone that may be looking to go into that role. What is it that they need to have? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, no, it's it's such a good question. So I would say a couple things. First of all, is that you you have to have sales DNA, right? You have to want to be selling and want to be building relationships. Our industry seems big to us because we know there's a lot of money out there, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's a relatively small circle. And so building and maintaining relationships, you have to be wired to be a, a relationship oriented person. On the upside, you know, to your point, I think the uh, on-site experience 
gives anybody who moves into a business development role instant credibility. When I would walk into a room and talk to a potential client way back when I was doing this, and I was telling them about how the on-site management was going to take place, how we were going to staff the property, how we were going to market the property. It wasn't somebody who was operating at 100,000 feet telling them that. It was somebody who had kind of been in the, in the weeds and, and had been through the experience before. So I think it's an awesome opportunity for on-site people who are looking to grow you know, their careers and, and grow into new new opportunities. I think business development is a, is a fantastic route uh, to take. Yeah. Eventually. It takes yeah. a while to get there because you have to have, go through a lot of different experiences to get there. But once you can, I, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity. Yeah. What was the kind of toughest thing for you to overcome going into that position? The thing I loved about business development and actually had to learn that I wouldn't get when I moved into the COO role. So I'm flipping your question around a little bit, but yeah. in business development and in property management in general, there's wins. You see your wins, you're awarded a contract, you sign the contract, everybody get, does a high five and you move on to the next project yeah. that you can do. In the COO role, there's not really wins. You know, It's not like you you know, wake up one morning and say, oh, wow, we operated today, right? We, there's no wins. You know, we, we have milestones, like when we lease up and when we hit certain things. But I had to learn as I continue to move on in my career that things that show up on your desk as you move up in the world become more and more challenging. People don't call me yeah. to tell me about all the wonderful things that are happening. They call me about the challenges that they're having and we try to work through them. And so I had to learn personally how to shift my mindset and celebrate little milestone victories instead of the instant gratification that you get in, in a business development role or in an onsite role when you sign a lease or whatever the case may be. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So outside of Bob and Teresa, is there anybody else that you want to kind of shout out to as having a big impact and yeah, I mean, what you've accomplished? There's a lot, you know, Mandy Elmore, I worked with back in GMH and she now, you know, works for me. She's my right-hand woman. She runs uh, the day-to-day for our portfolio. You know, Miles Orth, we were talking about earlier. Miles was head of operations at GMH when I was there and I spent a lot of time getting to know him and he's been a a leader in in our industry for a a really long time. Jim Kirby, he really did, uh, you know, despite him not getting me a lease for his daughter, (laughs) sorry, for his niece, he was formative for me because I got to see kind of what the acquisitions business, you know, looks like. Yeah. And actually getting yeah. back to your earlier question about what people should do if they want to get into business development, learning about the deal side of the business is something you really have to do. Yeah. 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 You mentioned Mandy Elmore and I, I want to park it there for just a second because mm-hmm. it's kind of funny. And in my previous roles in hiring folks, there's been a lot of people that have worked for peak and place. And it was kind of funny, you know, you get, when you start looking at, at resumes and you coming up, like you and I have in the industry, you start knowing when certain regional managers or regional vice presidents were in certain locations and who reported up to them. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of funny. I, I really started noticing everybody that came out of Mandy's portfolio <laughs> We had a fantastic time working with them. Mm-hmm. Even today, when people send me a resume and say, hey, do you know anything about this person? Because that happens all the time. I probably ought to start recruiting. But anyway, <laughs> they will you know, send that out to me. I'm like, you know what? This person actually, she worked under you know, Mandy Elmore during this time. And if she was there for three or five years and was able to work with Mandy and, and have that kind of tenure with her, you need to latch on. Yeah. And, um, 
That's so, so funny to hear you say that. Mandy's fantastic. I mean, I've probably talked to Mandy more than I talked to my own wife at this uh, this stage. <laughs> her role within Peak, and she, to your point, she does an outstanding job of building such great relationships with the people she worked for. Everybody who works with Mandy and works for Mandy loves working for Mandy. Yeah. But she also has the unique ability to have that dynamic, but also have high expectations for people and hold them accountable. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. that's what makes her great. Well, hey, I want to kind of move on to the future a little bit. What are some of the biggest challenges you see facing the student housing industry in the years to come? The easy and most immediate answer to that is that finding great people and retaining great people remains a challenge in property management, period. The industry grew faster than our talent base has grown. We are, I think, doing a good job now today as an industry of cultivating people either from other industries or who are coming up through the college ranks into being the next generation of leaders in in student housing. But I think it's going to continue to be a challenge for us as operators because there's a lot of of new properties being built, slightly fewer for next year. But nonetheless, there's a a lot of new product that's come to market and trying to find and retain great people is a big challenge. And all of us are taking different angles. You know, we at Peak have made a, a concerted effort to build a culture that people want to be around because yeah. we know that this can't just be an arms race, you know, where we just continue to pay people more and more and more and more and more. And it just kind of goes on until forever. What we ultimately are focused on is how can we create an environment when Wes's fine recruiting company calls up and says, I want to hire you to do X, Y, or Z on the margin. They say, I like where I'm at. I want to stay here because I see a career path for myself. They treat me fair. They treat me right. And I've got a, you know, a good culture um, that I belong to. That's a, something that I think I get asked all the time, what are you doing to combat the talent race or whatever the, the question is? And and I always say, you know, if you really want to have a, a good fight in the talent battle, you should have rewind the clock, go back 10 years and start building a culture that people want to be a yeah. part of because you can't flip a switch today when, when the market is really tough and decide that you're yeah. going you're gonna to start being a great place to work. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly right because it's those building blocks of those core values and everything else that really kind of determine what that looks like. So mm-hmm. that's a key point. The other challenge, and it's it's really kind of a challenge and an opportunity, if you will, is just consolidation in the space. We've been seeing consolidation of owner operators and, and of operators in general over the last seven years-ish. And I think that's going to continue. It puts a squeeze on smaller guys, right? Because Property management and operating properties is a business of scale. You know, if you have more properties, yeah. you can do it more efficiently than somebody has fewer properties. And so there's going to be continued consolidation and the challenge will be to see who can kind of weather that battle, if you will. There's smaller guys who are going to realize it's not worth it being in the, the operating business. And then there's going to be smaller guys who also say it's too important for me to have command and control of my deals that I, I'm going to stay in it, even though it's not a, an efficient business for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I want to talk a little bit about what would you suggest for someone that wants to go in the business development role or thinking about going into the business development role. Most of our audience are site level managers. A lot of them kind of in that, Hey, I've been here for four years, five years, six years, and they may have even gone into you know, a community manager position a couple of years after starting to work at their property. And they've been in it for a little bit. Now they're kind of thinking, okay, is this just something I do after college? Is this just something that I've picked up because I had some other managerial skill that related? And is this something that I want to grow in? What would be your advice for them if they're 
thinking about that and what the future looks like for student housing and how they may be able to fit into it beyond the site level? Three pieces of advice. Number one would be to be intellectually curious, right? I think that it's easy to go through the training on site and learn how to sign a lease and learn how to put in a work order and learn how to do the day-to-day blocking and tackling that that happens at an on-site property. I think that people who are going to be successful in the long term in our business are the ones who are asking the questions, how does rent collection impact the bottom line at the property? And how does the bottom line at the property translate into value creation for the investment community? I think the the people who take the time to learn the connection between what they do on site and ultimately the finance side of things, the deal side of the business, are the people who are going to be you know most successful. And I don't think that we as a as an industry um, you know do a great job of creating those education opportunities. We try to do some of it at peak. I know we could do more. We're going to try to continue to do more. But in the interim, until we've all figured out how to connect those dots well. The advice would be to be curious and ask people, if you're curious about that kind of thing, ask people, how does this work? How do I learn more? Yeah. There's so much of what you said there about being curious that kind of reminds me of not only advice that I got from regional managers and folks that I worked with when I was on site. I remember first company I worked for in the industry it's Coastal Properties out of Tallahassee, which I'm sure they still probably do some student housing stuff in Tallahassee, but they had a pretty decent footprint in the Southeast when I started with them. And my regional said, look, if you want to kind of take the next step, you really need to learn the budgeting process and Mm -hmm. invited me to come down to Tallahassee and spend a week in the office and kind of shadow him and some of the other regionals to kind of really understand what that process was like. And that was, that was so formative for, for me of being able to see that mm-hmm. from kind of that level to say, okay, this is something I'm really interested in. So I think it made an impression on them as well of, as, you know, who's this assistant manager coming in here <laughs> <laughs> shadowing these regionals. So yeah, no, I think that's great advice. It's funny that what you just described would actually have been my second piece of advice, which is look for opportunities to shadow or, you know, ask people to mentor. When I was in my regional manager role, we had a, a, a head of acquisitions who worked for us and who now works at Asset, Stephen Mitchell, if anybody knows him. Yeah. You know, Mitchell was the head of acquisitions. I didn't know anything about acquiring. I didn't know what a cap rate was. I didn't know anything about what, was <laughs> the, what the, that end of the business looked like. And I went into his office and asked him if he would teach me, uh, you know, not everything, but teach me enough to be dangerous. And he agreed and he was very gracious with his time, but he also slapped a big, basically a college textbook on the table and said, read this. It's like, well, okay, that sounds great. And I did, I read, you know, the parts of it, but then he walked me through kind of what the important pieces that I need to pick up. And, and again, finding somebody to, to mentor you and who is willing to be gracious with their time. I would tell you that there's probably more willingness of leaders in our industry to do that than you would think. And you yeah. just have to ask the question. To kind of wrap this thing up, the last question I typically ask folks is, you know, what's on the horizon for the next 12 months for yourself and for Peak? Is there anything you want to clue us in on as something we should be watching out for? Peak is really bullish on the future. Student housing as an industry has proven out um, and we've seen it now through a couple different cycles. It's it performs well on recessions. It performs well when there's an economic, uh, you know, upswing and even through pandemics, you know, it survives yeah. through pandemics. So 
I think for that reason, there's going to continue to be capital flowing to the space, which means that it, which is always good for all of us in the property management business. You know, more capital means you know more deals, which means more opportunity for us all to continue to grow. So we're super bullish about that. I think for Peak, what we're going to be focused on and what I'm personally focusing our resources on is is innovation. I look at and we look at property management as a business that is relatively archaic still. I mean, we've made a lot of strides. We don't use you know, ledger cards anymore, um, yeah. if you remember those days, but <laughs> we've come a long ways from those days. But there's still a ton of disruption that is ready to happen, I, we think, in the industry. And we've focused a number of our senior resources, built an internal innovation committee who is you know focused on looking at literally every aspect of what we do on site and dissecting it and saying, is that creating value? Yes or no? If yes, then how do we do it more efficiently? And if no, how do we eliminate that process and focus on the things that do create value? And we think there's a lot to be you know tackled there. If I have anything to do with it, that's going to be part of our brand and part of our um, you know kind of focus for for the future. So we're excited yeah. about it. it. Makes it exciting to come to work every day when you know you're you're basically going in to try and throw things against the wall and see what, yeah. what comes on. Do you think a lot of that's going to be focused on centralization like a lot of other companies are doing? Yeah, I mean, I think we're piloting pieces of centralization uh, in our portfolio. That's a part of it. I think there's a lot of technology opportunity. There's a lot of rethinking traditional roles you know, on site. What skill sets do we need based upon yeah. know, what, our, what co- our customers today are doing? Less the stat I quote everybody in our industry on or in our business on is that today on this lease up for fall of 23, 80% of our prospects who lease with us did not come and take a tour with us before they signed a lease. Oh, that's incredible. Isn't that incredible? And if you took that stat and rewound the clock five years, my guess is it would be close to opposite of that. And yeah. so how do we take the service level expectations that we have on site for our teams, for our customers? and shift around our resources to say, look, it may not mean that we need as many leasing consultants. We need customer service people. We need people who are focused on creating a wonderful experience for our residents. But the traditional way we staff properties can be rethought because of the way our our customers are behaving. Any insight to that 80%? Did they make their decision based off of what they saw from a digital standpoint on the website or whatever versus just referrals? Yeah, I mean, that's really obviously the, you know, where, you know, kind of the, the nuance happens. Yeah. You know, obviously, we focus, you know, a ton on our digital uh, you know, presence and lead generation on from a digital perspective. But, you know, we, we find tons of people, they may not have toured with us formally before they signed a lease. The reality is that they probably came and visited a friend or visited a friend's friend. And if we can create an experience that that friend says, yeah, this is a great place to live, that's going to be probably where the where we're able to generate more, more interest. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Casey, I appreciate the time that you've given to myself and the audience. I really appreciate the time that you you spent on our leadership committee for shop talk. It's been great to work with you on that. And you're always a good resource of, of knowledge. And even from a consulting standpoint, when I get stuck on something, <laughs> I find myself reaching out to you a lot. And I uh, just want to thank you for that. And, Love what you guys are doing over at Peak. We had Bob on as part of our From the Top podcast last year when we were at Interface and and getting to know him a little bit better was really great and just love what you guys are doing. Well, thank you very much for having me, Wes, and thanks for all you do for the industry. I mean, this the podcast and all all of the other things that you do on a part-time or full-time basis to to continue (laughs) to 
create awareness for the industry and you know all the all the shifting dynamics is really appreciated and, and it makes us all better. So thank you. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun doing it, and as long as folks are getting value out of it, I'll keep doing it. That's great. Well, thanks, Casey. We'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Wes. Well, again, big thanks to Casey for not only cutting out some time for that interview, but everything he's doing to support the industry and helping move everything forward. Well, guys, I think that does it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please recommend it to your colleagues. And uh, if you haven't caught some of the previous episodes that we've done in this profile and student housing series, go back and check those out. They're really fantastic. Last month, we did Chris Richards from Core Spaces, and that was, uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback from you guys on that, that I know a lot of you really enjoyed it. So for those of, the, of you that have not heard that one, go back and, and listen to it for sure. I also want to remind you about the last two Shop Talk webinars that we will be having for this academic calendar. I guess the best way of telling you this is just remember the number 13, because we're doing June's on June 13th, and July Shop Talk will be on July 13th. We don't do one for August just because everyone's busy with turn, and so am I. So we leave August alone for that, and we'll pick things back up in September. And again, if you're not registered and you want to receive an email reminder of when those webinars are scheduled, just make sure you go to shoptalk.info and click on that register for web meeting button on the homepage there. Well, guys, I appreciate it so much. Everyone take care and we'll talk to you soon.